On behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the September 2019 podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the editor of the Chess podcast section. I'd like to thank you all for joining us today for what will be a very interesting and exciting conversation on the use of point-of-care ultrasound. Today, we're very fortunate to have Dr. Seth Koenig and Dr. John Cochran, and I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves uh, to the audience. Uh, Seth? Good morning. Uh, yes, my name is Dr. Seth Koenig. Uh, <clears throat> I am currently now the Director of Education in New York at the Montefiore Medical Center, and uh, I guess I will be speaking on uh, why I believe it is quite important to use uh, ultrasound uh, for any patient that is acutely breathless. Great. It's an absolute pleasure to have you, Seth. And John? Wonderful. And afternoon, everyone, or morning, depending on where you are. My name is John Corcoran. I'm a consultant chest physician based in Plymouth in the United Kingdom. I am one of our interventional leads and use a lot of ultrasound as a result of that. I'm going to be talking on why I would urge a degree of caution in terms of how we extend the use of ultrasound in our patients and what might still need to be done before we uh, look to use it in a more common and widespread basis. Well, an absolute pleasure to have both of you on this podcast. So today's um, podcast will deal with uh, the topic, should point-of-care ultrasound examination be routine practice in the evaluation of the acutely breathless patient? Uh, Seth will be giving our point, and um, John will be giving our counterpoint. So, Seth, please go ahead. Great. Thank you very much. I think I would, uh, at the outset, simply say that I think we could all agree that uh, any acutely short-of-breath patient that we see, uh, wherever the patient may be, uh, gives us great concern. And I think quickly we ask ourselves, is this a patient who is in dire need of something to be done? Are they uh, very close to uh, potentially having a fatal problem? Or is this something that may simply be an anxiety problem or a problem with some other part of the body? And I think that we can agree that for this conversation, I hope we are looking for the individual who has some sort of problem with their lungs. And uh, at the outset, we are unclear as to whether or not this is serious. So I think that um, putting aside, as we all would probably agree, and my friend on the other side would agree that um, all of us have been taught to use uh, a stethoscope and our physical examination and our powers of clinical judgment that should be put forth no matter what patient we are talking about. And so I'm not going to speak about that because obviously any patient that I approach who's acutely short of breath, I'm going to ask what's happening uh, and, and try to do my best physical, surface physical examination and clinical history. However, my belief is that in 2019 and for the last, I don't know, decade and a half, um, we should use the tools that are most efficient, most sensitive, most specific, most cost-effective, and putting all of those things together to to quite quickly uh, make a diagnosis of an individual that's in front of us. And if we use a stethoscope and chest radiography uh, as the gold sort of standard for what we would call past the surface eye exam and clinical history, then I would say that in 2019, point-of-care ultrasound beats that without a question. I think that we will hear from the other side that we need to make sure that that people, that physicians, that clinical providers know how to do lung ultrasound, but I'll remind everybody that nobody Uh, Once they pass medical school to text people or or ask people, um, do they understand how to use a stethoscope? So having that as a background, I would say that in the last 10 or 15 years, I'm not sure you could find a good pulmonary and critical care journal that over time doesn't have many articles looking at the ease of learning lung ultrasonography, the diagnostic accuracy, sensitivity, specificity, over and above certainly the stethoscope and uh, many studies looking at uh, the fact that chest x-rays are subpar in the evaluation of patients with acute shortness of breath, and that folks who really are, are going to be critically ill, even CT scans are probably on par with uh, point-of-care ultrasound. I think what, what makes the difference between all of the things I've just said is that any individual with a handheld ultrasound 
machine, which is widely available, can do the surface physical examination. And I say surface simply because the stethoscope listens from the surface, and we touch, listen, look, feel, and we do our clinical history. And while we are waiting for other things to come back, we can then turn to point-of-care ultrasound. And within about a minute or two, uh, a competent, trained physician in lung ultrasound, which, again, I will go back to saying that I think all clinical providers should be trained in this modality, can quickly ascertain whether or not the lungs are wet, whether the lungs are dry, whether there's a consolidation, whether there's a pleural effusion, whether or not it potentially is cardiogenic or non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. All of this can be done to help at the bedside so you can do the clinical examination. So there's image acquisition, there's image interpretation, and there's clinical association all at the same time by the provider without clinical and time dissociation. And I think that that is simply the power of the modality. And I will also say that I am not anti-chest X-ray, anti-chest CT scan, anti-consultative radiology and, and echocardiography. This is not pitting one modality against the other or one physician against the other. This is simply saying that if all things are equal, what modality in the hands of the individual will allow the provider to give a pretty good diagnosis upfront and allow that individual to say very clearly, I need to do X, Y, and Z, or maybe, hey, this is just a pneumonia and I'm going to start antibiotics. And I think um, I'll lead off with that and see where the conversation takes us. Thank you very much, Seth. I really appreciate that very well laid out argument. I'll turn now to John, who will give his counterpoint. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity and the invitation to speak today. I think we're unlike, I think based on what um, Dr. Koenig Seth has been talking about, I suspect what we're going to see is that when one starts with these things, that we look to be a long way apart. And actually, I think there's going to be a fair deal of common ground here, actually, where we are going to agree on a great deal of what's being discussed moving forwards and what the best next steps might be. I take things from the point of view of if we were writing a guideline tomorrow, would I say point-of-care ultrasound should be the standard of care. This is what we should be doing in everybody. And I would say that on the basis of the evidence that's out there and what we know so far, that we may be approaching a point where that will be the case, but I don't believe that we are necessarily there yet. I think we are all on the same page when we say that we want to do what is best for our patients. We want to be able to make the most accurate diagnosis as possible, as quickly as possible, and that we want to be able to institute the correct treatment from the outset that's going to leave them with the best chance of having a good outcome. And we equally know that these patients, those who turn up to hospital acutely breathless or indeed who are already in hospital and then become acutely breathless for whatever reason, are a patient population that time and again present us and our colleagues with significant difficulties and a recurring challenge. They're frequently patients who are frail, they're frequently comorbid, and they frequently have a number of conditions, all of which could potentially be contributing to the means by which they've presented with very little for us to be able to actually differentiate between them necessarily when it comes to either clinical history or examination. And that often means that what we see is best described as dustbin treatment where someone will say, well, it could be this, it could be that, or it could be something else entirely. And so what I'm going to do is treat them for all of them at the outset and then try and refine that at a later stage. What we do know in my interpretation or reading of the data is that point-of-care ultrasound has been shown to be useful and potentially be more useful than plain chest, a plain chest radiograph or indeed examination in a number of specified settings. So we see a great deal of evidence from a emergency department setting and we see probably a great wealth of data from a critical care perspective. But what I don't quite see yet being there is a more general of data from a wider population. We have very specific subsets. We have 
ICU, we have the emergency department, we have trauma, but what we don't see is the extension of things beyond that. And equally, what we see is a great deal of data being delivered by individuals who are highly clinical competent and already have a degree of expertise that ultrasound essentially is being allied to. So individuals such as, such as my colleague Seth are going to have a great deal of clinical expertise and acumen that means that when they are approaching these patients, they are already refining what it is that they think is happening and how they're going to approach them and how they might treat them in a way that a less experienced individual or a more naive individual may not be able to do so. And when we say that something is a standard of care, what we're saying is that we're expecting those individuals to be able to approach the same patient and use the tool in the same fa fashion and potentially deliver the same kind of diagnostic and therapeutic gains. And I think there's a great challenge there. I'm not familiar with North American undergraduate medical training, but I certainly know that in the UK and in Northern Europe, we're not yet at a stage whereby all of our medical schools are incorporating basic ultrasound interpretation and skills into training curricula. And indeed, it's not until they're reaching higher specialty training that we see many of those individuals do that. So already we have a barrier that says that it's not available to those people and that we're going to need to find a way of training them. And then that leads on to, well, how do we train them? We train them to use a stethoscope as part of undergraduate work. And indeed, as part of their postgraduate training, certainly in the UK, their ability to use that tool and to identify clinical examination findings on a kind of common basis continues to be assessed moving forwards until they reach their kind of specialist certification and are essentially practicing at consultant senior clinician level. So I think we have to look at it and say, how are we going to do that from an ultrasound perspective? And then taking it beyond that level of expertise and saying, okay, so we have a number of individuals with great expertise in both clinical assessment and ultrasound who are using this tool for breathless patients. Do we still see that same gain when we wind it out into wider usage, i.e. for all individuals or a much broader population of clinicians as well as a broader population of patients? And it all boils down to, I use plain chest radiograph, it's a good tool in the right hands, but we know that frequently confidence and ability to interpret a plain chest radiograph is potentially deficient in a number of junior and less experienced clinicians because they don't get enough teaching on it. And I suppose one of my other concerns about introducing point of care ultrasound or similar is that we are essentially introducing another tool that clinicians or junior less experienced clinicians may not necessarily be as confident at using. And I think before we wind it out and use it in a wider sense, we have to think about how we might address that concern as well. Otherwise, we've essentially taken one tool, which is potentially poorly used in the form of a chest radiograph, and simply replaced it with another. And I suppose that's the point of view that I would come from. And I'd be interested to hear what Seth's views are on that and also his experience of undergraduate training in somewhere outside of an environment that I'm familiar with. Thank you, John. So, Seth, um, John mentioned two really good points about the level of evidence that's required as well as uh, certain limitations about uh, standardization and credentialing. Um, hopefully, uh, I was hoping that you could respond to those. Yeah, um, I thought... Uh, uh, what John said um, was spot on, and I, I agreed with his uh, initial statement that I think a lot of things that we're going to talk about, we overlap in our agreement. Um, in fact, I don't think there's anything that John said that I disagree with. Uh, I, I would like to mention um, that when uh, we were doing the point-counterpoint, it really wasn't assessing whether or not uh, the people would be competent or clinical providers would be competent to perform point-of-care ultrasound, it was whether or not we believe that point-of-care ultrasound should be uh, used. So depending upon which way you want to take that statement, um, I think it will, that, that may ultimately decide how you're going to answer the question. I think that training, which I said from the beginning, is an extremely important part of of, of anything, and I agree that if you introduce something that already people aren't great at, say, reading chest radiographs, 
um, it may introduce confusion. However, I would say that even if you're a senior radiologist who is the best chest radiologist in the world, uh, chest radiographs will underestimate or overestimate the degree of a pleural effusion and alveolar consolidation, pulmonary edema in the best of hands, where point-of-care ultrasound, and the literature is quite clear on this, has a much, header, uh, much better sensitivity, specificity, and accuracy for ruling in and ruling out more diagnoses than a standard chest radiograph at the highest level. So I think that that's an important point uh, to make at the outset. So if I was going to choose one modality to teach my residents uh, for this, I would choose, uh, you know, ultrasound over uh, chest radiography uh, for sure. Um, the second point I think he brought up, which is uh, what about um, the what about the evidence for this that's not necessarily in uh, the ICU or in the emergency room? And I would simply say um, that uh, some truths are just self-evident, that the individual who is, uh, whether they're seated in, a, in an ICU in an emergency room or out on the floor in a bathroom or wherever the case may be, the, the approach to that individual um, is similar. And I think that, um, yes, it will be very hard to get evidence that will say with 100% certainty that point-of-care ultrasound saves lives over other modalities. But again, we haven't uh, ever figured out that CAT scans, chest radiographs, echocardiograms have done that either. In fact, even mechanical ventilators, it's just we're not going to do those, uh, those types of studies. So I agree with everything that John has said, and he said it very well. I just think that we have evidence that if you have better tools, maybe those are the tools that need to be uh, educated on and we need to change the environment with which that education is given. And certainly in the United States, that is starting to occur. Many medical schools, including my medical school, uh, have point-of-care ultrasound as part of uh, the curriculum. But as I've said to many of my colleagues, a fool is still a fool with an ultrasound. And so you, just because you have radiology and the capability of making a radiologic diagnosis, that is in and of itself never going to be helpful. And I agree with what John said, that if you approach this patient with a lot of clinical experience, obviously what I see on a screen and what another individual sees on a screen or a radiograph or a CAT scan, I may be able to make a more informed diagnosis simply because of my experience. However, I don't think that that should be a reason not to take the available, most accurate, and, and, I, and I mean this very seriously, the ability to not have clinical and time dissociation is, in my mind, extremely valuable because, if, as John said, you have folks who are frail, who don't necessarily want to be moved from bed to bed to CAT scanner and back and forth, who have multiple comorbidities. Well, you know, take the patient who has a history of heart failure who comes into the hospital day after day, and you do a lung ultrasound, and you see that there are no, there's no evidence of interstitial edema. The likelihood is that patient's not in acute pulmonary edema. So I agree that we see these folks, they come in, they give, they're being treated for pneumonia, for heart failure, for asthma. We see this on a regular basis. I'm simply saying that if you take this tool, I think this tool is better than most of the other tools that we see today. John, I'll let you respond to that. I think, you know, I think Seth is absolutely right on that front. I think a lot of this boil a lot of this boils down to how people intend to use the tool that is handed to them, whether that is ultrasound, whether that is chest x-ray, whether that is CT. And I I recall um, a, a paper that was published in this journal a few years ago relating to exactly that, which is can we reduce the use of, for example, CT pulmonary angiogram by using a multimodal ultrasound assessment in order to better refine what the likely presenting condition was in these individuals who are presenting acutely breathless. And that is exactly the kind of study that is needed at this stage to say this is what this tool 
is capable of doing and then to broaden that out into a wider setting to say that this is what we're going to do moving forwards. And we're starting to see those kinds of pragmatic studies coming through at this stage. They're starting to be proposed either in outline, people publishing their methodology, or else otherwise people starting to publish preliminary results. So you see, for taking examples, you see something like the C3PO study, which is being put forward by my friend and colleague Mark Hugh in Australia, looking at multimodal ultrasound and assessing whether or not that that is going to change outcomes in a wider general medical breathless population. You have Christian Lausen, my co-author on this article, and his colleagues in Denmark, again, putting forward a multi-center assessment with multiple clinicians across the board saying that this isn't just going to necessarily be experts who are using this, we are going to train people to use ultrasound in a protocol fashion, and they are going to do that, and we are going to see what it does in terms of outcomes that we are interested in. So not just diagnostic accuracy, but treatment moving forward from that, outcomes, length of stay, comorbidity, and so on. I believe we're starting to see that again. There's a Again, in this particular journal, in CHEST, we have an article that's in press at the moment, which has been assessing, well, which method of lung ultrasound should we use if we've got a patient who presents to the emergency department with heart failure? What is the best methodological approach that we should be using and what's going to give us the best information that we need? And it's those kinds of studies that are going to inform us moving forwards, being able to say to our junior colleagues, our trainees, and our undergraduates, this is how you should use ultrasound. This is where you should use ultrasound. And this is what ultrasound is capable of telling you when integrated with all of the other clinical information that's available. And this is where the limitation of ultrasound is. And this is where you can't take that further, where you are going to need to do this further test or you are going to need to consider something else in order to better inform your clinical decision-making process. And I believe at the moment that we are in the process of developing that evidence base. And there are situations where that evidence base will be harder to develop or potentially where you don't need to be as robust about it. So I think we can all confidently agree that for the majority of our patients who are being managed in a critical care environment, who may be on supportive treatment of some description, whether that's cardiovascular or potentially on invasive ventilation, we know in those individuals that a plain chest radiograph is likely to be of poor or limited quality. We know they're precisely the kind of patient that you don't want to be shuttling around the hospital to try and get them to or from a CT scan because that's associated with inherent risk. And we know they're precisely the kind of patient where actually having exactly what Seth referred to, which is that real-time integration of information from the patient that you're seeing, the numbers, the observations and everything in front of you, and then your physical examination, being able to integrate that in real time in an immediate setting is absolutely crucial. And that's that population. But you've got that separate population of where actually, potentially, you do have a degree of time. And I think your threshold for where ultrasound may be useful and where it adds value and where that value may be limited is likely to be different in those settings. And I think that's really what we've got to be able to define better. And that's what we're already seeing work coming out that's starting to do that. And I think in the next, if we have the same discussion, I suspect in three or four years' time, I think what I would be saying at that point, depending on what the data that comes out shows, may be very, very different Thank you, John. So it was interesting reading your two articles, and you'll do differ on certain important issues. So I'm actually dig a bit deeper on that. Um, so for John, um, Seth said that you know using an ultrasound is you know the evidence is self-evident. It's like using a stethoscope. 
What is your response to that? And what level of evidence would you say that uh, we need to have for ultrasound? I would say that we've had stethoscopes around for a very, very long time, you know, longer than we've had antibiotics. And I would agree with Seth that what he said was we don't have, you know, you'd never do a study nowadays to say that this treatment, you know, something like antibiotics, we're going to see whether not giving people antibiotics when we know that they've got community-acquired pneumonia or similar. When no one's ever going to do that study, it's not there. I think what we have with respect to the use of something like a stethoscope is we all have a fairly standardized approach. We all teach our undergraduates and we say, this is the way that you listen to a chest. This is the way that you listen to a heart. These are the clinical signs that are long well established that allow you to say that it's most likely to be, you know, in a rational clinical examination approach. This gives you this element of information, which when you integrate it with this other finding that may or may not be present, makes you more likely to consider a diagnosis. And we drill that into our undergraduates repeatedly throughout their undergraduate training. They're constantly being watched, examine patients. They examine patients. They come and present them to us as their supervising clinicians. We go back to the patient with them to examine the patient and to essentially reiterate the findings. If we find something different, everyone does things differently, but if I find something different on my examination, I will hold the stethoscope there. I will invite my trainee to come over and I will say, listen here and then listen there. What do you think is happening? Is that what you heard? And that you get that repeated practice and that repeated learning that means over time they develop that. We don't have that as yet with ultrasound. So undoubtedly what we need is some way of integrating ultrasound into our examination and into our clinical training that allows you to do that. But what we also need to be able to say to our undergraduates or to our junior trainees is here is the ultrasound finding or here's what you've found and what is the differential for this? what might allow you to point, push yourself in one direction rather than another. You take something as simple as B-lines, for example, and we know that B-lines may be caused by a variety of different conditions, and depending on the pattern that you see and the location in which you see them, one diagnosis or another becomes more likely. We've seen, again, in this journal, an article written by a man who many would regard as a leading exponent of point-of-care ultrasound in Daniel Lichtenstein, where he himself says, you know, is it, you know, undoubtedly useful, but is this easy or straightforward? And not always. It's something that, much like any form of clinical examination, it's very easy to get wrong. And I think particularly as well from a purely kind of standards of care location, what we are doing is we are taking what is predominantly and has previously been a radiological examination, and we are bringing it into a point-of-care clinical setting where rather than it being radiologists who are taking the lead on this now, it is physicians or similar. And what we need to say is, do we apply the same standards? So where do we, where do we set the bar for them? What is expected in terms of the minimum data set that we are going to record? What kinds of methods are we going to put into place whereby those images can be reviewed? How are they reviewed with the trainee? And how do we use that moving forwards from an educational perspective? And I think we need to get all of those things right and we need to get all of those things done in a robust fashion before we can just simply let our trainees loose and say, this is what, we should, this is what you should be doing, proceed and see what you find. I think the understanding of that integration and what's expected of them, and indeed what's expected of us as trainers, is going to be absolutely critical. And again, you take that article that's been in press currently in chest, looking at the use of heart ultrasound in assessments of heart failure and how it augments a clinical prediction score, they're trying to do exactly that. They're trying to say which of these different examination approaches and what kind of protocol are we going to use that adds the greatest value. And that's what we need to be refining at this stage. 
also said that John makes a, a strong case for real-world application where we need to be cautious about quality control, training, and uh, you know, patients with numerous comorbid illnesses. How do you respond to that? Uh, <clears throat> I would simply say he's right. Uh, I would say that, again, there's nothing that he said that is, in, that is incorrect. I would simply remind everybody that, again, first the question is, should we use you know, point-of-care ultrasound for the acutely breathless patient? And it depends upon um, in what manner you want to answer it. I think globally what he's saying is uh, maybe yes. Maybe the answer is yes, but until you do that, until you make sure that the people who are using point-of-care ultrasound understand it in a way that is either similar or I would, I would like to say better than the information you get from a stethoscope, one should have great caution. Uh, I would agree with that uh, completely. I simply am saying that if you if you put the two tools next to one another, um, and, and I don't, I can't speak for the UK as he is not necessarily speaking for North America, but there are diagnoses and dual and triple diagnoses that pop up all the time, and the individuals who say they understand how to listen to with a stethoscope. Um, we may have differing opinions. However, sometimes seeing something on a screen is a little bit more robust uh, to the eyes uh, than it is uh, to the ears. And there are diagnoses that the stethoscope may make. For instance, we had a patient who had crackles on exam, a fever, a white blood cell count, and an X-ray that showed a consolidation and clearly in the right clinical uh, hands, and uh, that was a pneumonia started with antibiotics. But I always tell my my residents, you know, just because it's there, just do a DVT study. And in fact, we did a DVT study and an individual had a clot in the, in the you know, the common femoral vein and a CT pulmonary angiogram confirmed that this was in fact, you know, all due to a pulmonary embolism. Now that's one of those cases where everybody says, well, yeah, you got lucky once in a while. But the point is, is that I think as this, as this technology gets out there, we can do whole body ultrasound on folks when they come in and they're breathless and we can say sometimes people have dual diagnoses, triple diagnoses. So I would say an answer that there's nothing that John said that's not 100% correct in my mind. We need to make sure that as we train people, we train people to be first clinicians and second, how to use whatever radiology that we obtain in the, in the best way um, moving forward. I'm simply saying that I think, and I think John agrees, that in years to come, that initial modality may be ultrasound simply because it is more accurate, sensitive, specific than a chest radiograph uh, uh, certainly is going to be, and it also eliminates that time and clinical dissociation uh, that we see at the bedside. I think that uh, data is data, and I agree. I think, um, you know, I, I was the original author on the paper that looked at the, the, you know, pulmonary embolism. Can we decrease the rate of CT pulmonary angiograms? And I think for me, the impetus to start that uh, study was simply to say I'm, I'm frustrated in how many people that come into the hospital, the second that they say they're short of breath, they're ordered for a CT angiogram, which may or may not be a benign exam and may take time uh, for uh, folks to, to get done. In the meantime, we may have been able to do some sort of other radiography or radiology that may have eliminated the need for this test and or started treatment uh, much earlier. I think that as these studies come out, as John said, I think that we as, a, as, as physicians and clinical providers just need to be vigilant in pushing the envelope and saying that we should not say static, that our, that our practice um, and the art and the science of medicine must move forward, just as most people don't put pulmonary artery catheters in folks for septic shock these days, I think we need to move forward and say maybe there's a better modality, and I'm sure that the folks who developed the stethoscope would have been giggly to have a an ultrasound machine by their, uh, by their side, but they just didn't have the technology back then. Yeah, I certainly agree with you um, with the fact that we need to move forward. When moving forward, one always has to be careful of 
the limitations of the tools that we use. So, Seth, I'm actually going to ask you to play a bit of devil's advocate here. And in your experience, what limitations have you identified with the use of ultrasound, and what mistakes or uh, have you seen in your fellows or junior faculty when using it? Many. Uh, I think that um, it is not uncommon, and maybe John can also tell me some of his experiences, where folks will miss an alveolar consolidation completely in a patient who has a white count of fever, cough, and hypoxemia, and tell me the chest X-ray didn't show anything and the ultrasound didn't show anything, so they ordered a CT pulmonary angiogram. Meanwhile, I come to the bedside and just turn the patient a little bit to the side and find a whopping alveolar consolidation. I've seen folks, you know, mistake the right ventricle for the left ventricle when folks come in short of breath and tell me that the right ventricle is dilated and therefore maybe this is a submassive to a massive pulmonary embolus depending upon hemodynamic uh, profile. So I think that on a regular basis, I am seeing this, which is what led our institution or the, or the institution I just was at to start a credentialing process for point-of-care ultrasound where we are starting to say, okay, we understand the value of this technology. However, we can't have people running around calling things that either don't exist or calling things that they think exist and starting a treatment uh, therapy, treatment for that. And so I've seen on a regular basis uh, what the good and the bad comes from any technology. And I think that that's a, the really good point that John is making is that we need to be careful, at least if someone orders a CT pulmonary angiogram and a competent, confident radiologist reads it, the likelihood is you're going to get uh, an accurate answer, albeit maybe two, three hours later and maybe in different circumstances, but at least you're getting a confident answer. Same thing goes with echo and ultrasound of the lower extremities, and, and the list goes on and on. I'm simply saying that um, chest and, uh, and we as, as physicians are trying to push uh, the envelope and saying that on par, if you look at the modalities that we have, ultrasound is more accurate, sensitive, specific, so therefore maybe we ought to start putting our energy into the education and the research uh, behind it so that we can confidently in the near future uh, say, you know, this modality should be taught right alongside with the stethoscope uh, always. And, I mean, in the near future, stethos stethoscopes and ultrasound probes and machines, they're not going to be that far off from each other in terms of cost and availability. And so folks are going to have to make a decision um, whether or not they want to use one or the other, or as everything in medicine and in anything that you do, use a rational approach as to which modality. Sometimes all you need is a stethoscope. Sometimes you don't even need that. You just need your ear to figure out what's wrong with an individual. And John, your response? I would, I would agree with Seth entirely on that. We, we all know that medicine is very much a... Uh, learning process. We've all, we've all made mistakes and we've all made clinical diagnoses that have turned out to be wrong at a later stage. And it's very much a case of there, but for the grace of God at times, particularly in those patients where you don't have a great deal of time and you have to make a decision that's quick. I think the example that Seth refers to where he says you've got someone with barn door consolidation on a chest radiograph. They've got a raised white cell count and inflammatory markers. They're febrile. I think that's exactly the kind of patient where when I'm with my trainees, I say that is the patient that you want to go and scan. I know that the diagnosis is there staring you in the face, but it's exactly the patient that you want to scan because it means that when you see that, you understand that that is what it is, that this correlates with that diagnosis so that the next time you see it, when potentially we know that changes on a, on a chest radiograph may lag behind, you may pick it up quicker on an ultrasound, you may see it and you recognize it earlier. It's all part of that learning process at that stage. I think defining where ultrasound adds the greatest value and where it exceeds, you know, again, as an interventionalist, the example that I would cite on that, which I cited in the article, was for pleural effusions and for pleural disease. We know, we know there is a wealth of data that says that ultrasound 
can outperform plain chest radiograph. It allows you, when you're looking, when I see a patient with a whiteout on their chest X-ray, the first thing I do is I just get the ultrasound probe and I stick it on. I ask my to answer the question of, is this collapse? Is this an effusion? Is this something else? And we know in that area that the evidence for that and the evidence that ultrasound outperforms chest X-ray for pleural fluid is there. There is a wealth of data relating both to the identification of pleural fluid, but then also for the subsequent intervention and how that can impact on patient outcomes, such as reducing complication rates. So you take that standard, and what I look at and say is we have that wealth of data for that particular area of practice. Can we apply a similar standard of evidence and a similar standard for data in another condition? So, for example, heart failure. So in the diagnosis of heart failure, what do we need to do? Is ultrasound of the lung good enough? Do you want to integrate that with a assessment of the cardia in a very simple, straightforward fashion? Does the left ventricle look as if it is working normally? Or does it look like there's something grossly abnormal? Do we combine that with a vascular assessment? Do you look at IVC distension or collapsibility and integrate that into things as well? Those are all of the kinds of questions that we need to answer. How much is needed? What's the minimum data set that we should be looking to acquire in these different conditions? What's the minimum standard of recording and documentation? How do you record it? You look at, I take it, echocardiography as the most classic example. There are very clear standards, certainly in the United Kingdom, and I would imagine the same is there as well in the U.S. for how many examinations you have to do, how many you have to do under supervision, and then of the ones that you do independently, what is the minimum data set that you have to record that can then be retrospectively reviewed with your supervisor or your trainer where they can look at things and say, okay, you saw this, what's your interpretation of that? What else could it possibly be? You look alongside it and say, do we need to incorporate some form of, if we're looking at credentialing, do we need to incorporate some form of examination as part of that, an assessment, be that along the lines of an OSCE, so an observed examination where they are examining potentially static findings. We know that patients with interstitial lung disease, for example, have very static and diagnosed findings. There's good work going on at the moment and a study running at the moment looking at the use of ultrasound to help direct the treatment of heart failure in the community. You could look at something like that and bring those patients into it. But what we need to be doing is standardizing things and saying this is the minimum standard of knowledge and expectation and expertise that an individual who is going to be credentialed in POCUS moving forwards, how many examinations do they need to do? How many of those should be done under supervision? And then independently, what are we going to use in order to provide the point of reference for their findings versus an end diagnosis or treatment pathway? Those are all the things that we need to be looking at moving forwards. Those are really important points. Seth, I do want to touch on one of those points that John brought up, and that was the issue of documentation and standardization. As fellows and junior faculty, a lot of people use beta ultrasound, but there's no recording of that data in the patient's charts for further use where it's a standardized process. And that's probably one of the benefits of using chest X-ray or CAT scan. We can go back in time over the past month or so and see the changes, whereas with beta ultrasound, there doesn't seem to be a standardized method of recording it for future um, uh, analysis um, and use in patient care. Uh, do you all have a process of uh, making sure that that uh, is, is better done? Well, it's interesting. I think in, uh, it's already been published electronically, I believe, and it will come out next month. But I wrote uh, in, uh, I think, in the upcoming edition of CHEST, uh, ultrasound billing for the intensivist. And uh, that goes over the, all of the questions that you just asked in regards to documentation and correct documentation and subsequently whether or not you should bill for uh, your point of care ultrasound, I think you bring up a really good point. I think that the only way uh, for us to use this moving forward is to have a record of what's been done prior. And so in our institution, all of our studies 
that are of uh, you know clinical importance are actually kept uh, with a, a you know it's just put into the sky under. We use a system called QPath, but many places have all sorts of different video archiving uh, systems. And so we have a standardized approach to where we're going to put the clinical information along with what we found on the exam and subsequently, and most importantly, what the interpretation is. And so that actually becomes part of the record, the medical record. I think moving forward, that has to be part of the education and training, and we're hoping that, that um, as more data comes out and more of these studies and review articles, that people will start recognizing that, as the old saying is, if it's not recorded in the chart, it didn't happen. And uh, we've seen that many times where someone will see something and then it's gone two, three days later, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't there, but somebody may say, well, well, you didn't record it, so therefore it didn't exist. I think that you need this also for quality assurance, as John was, was bringing up. I think there is going to be a minimum standard of exams that people need to perform. Uh, we finally got the National Board of Echocardiography here in the United States. We've had our first advanced critical care echo exam, and we did just that. Now folks are going to have to take an examination, but further, they're going to have to prove via 150 uh, ultrasound examinations of the heart via a mentor that they've been done and they've been done well and people understand what they're actually doing because getting the images and interpreting them are separate matters sometimes. So I think moving forward, we need to start this discussion in the medical community that as point-of-care ultrasound is performed, it needs to be documented. Uh, and that also is what allows people to have that quality assurance because if it's documented, then somebody can go back and make sure that what they said is actually true. I couldn't agree with you more. Okay, great response. As we wind up to the end of the podcast, I just want to take the opportunity and allow each of you to, if we haven't discussed something during this podcast, just bring it to light. Um, and I'll give that first to John, and then I'll have, have Seth have the last word. John? Absolutely. I think we've, I think as I said right at the outset of our discussion, I think there's likely to be a lot more common ground in terms of what we, what we expect and what we see moving forwards with respect to points of care ultrasound than might necessarily first appear when you read the um, point and the counterpoint. And that's just such the, the nature of these kinds of debates that one comes from either end of things and what you actually find when you actually talk about things that there's a great deal of common ground in the middle. I think what I would say is moving forwards, what we need is those, I've alluded to them already because they are ongoing, but there is data that is being collected, that is being developed, that is developing the evidence base that is showing us outside of the populations where we've seen the data being acquired for point-of-care ultrasound previously, we're now seeing it being acquired in that more general medical setting. And indeed, there are studies going on in primary care, even looking at the use with family physicians, general practitioners, can they use ultrasound? Because there again, they don't have access to what I would necessarily use as baseline tests in hospital. So is there a utility there? One of my friends and colleagues based in King's College in London has done some excellent, excellent work looking at the use of point-of-care ultrasound in a deprived remote setting where, again, you don't have access to some, some of the tests that we take for granted in hospital, but yet where the ability to have an ultrasound machine just sitting in your clinic in a remote location is much easier than necessarily having access to even a plain chest radiograph or certainly a CT scan. So again, it's all about thresholds where the utility of ultrasound is going to be greatest, is going to be shifted by the nature of the clinical environment in which you work. And I think there will be different levels of expectation in terms of the evidence base and what needs to be done moving forwards. What I would like to see is a evolving, and it will be a continually evolving position statement. We've seen the consensus statement from the great and good of point of care ultrasound that was published a number of years ago 
that needs to be, I would feel, updated with the latest data that we have available to us saying these are the areas where further research will be beneficial and will add value. We need guidance from those individuals who use ultrasound on a day-to-day basis as part of their clinical practice to say this is where we feel our research efforts and funding should be directed at this stage. And I think also some guidance from them on what are we going to set as the minimum expected standard, because I think you could get international consensus on that. This is how we are going to train our individuals moving forwards. Do you need to have something like the Board of Echocardiography with a minimum of 150 examinations that can then be audited and looked at for quality assurance purposes? How many of how many ultrasound scans of the lung, for example, do they need to do? What range of conditions does an individual need to have seen? How do you carry out an examination that allows you to say that someone is competent moving forwards? These are all things that need to be addressed, where at the moment we just have a paucity of guidance and data, and that's really what I would like to see moving forwards in the future. Thank you, John. Uh, Seth, I'll let you have the last word. Well, I think uh, John said it. I could not say what uh, his sentiment any better. Really, I was going to say similar things, but um, in a British accent, it sounds much better, uh, for sure. Uh, I would say that it's really refreshing having this conversation with him and realizing that regardless of which continent we're on, I think that 95% of what we said, if not more, actually aligns with one another. And I think we need to take pause whenever we are trying to change the way uh, regular people or everyday physicians and clinical providers are doing things. I think we need to have that pause and we need to have people remind us that we must stay vigilant to quality and and protocols and keeping things simple for folks and understanding the education and how it's going to be put forth out there. I think that is an extremely important thing. And I also would have touched on, which is exactly what he said, which is where is ultrasound going to have its greatest impact? Well, sometimes it literally is in places where folks can't get other types of imaging modalities. And I think we are seeing this uh, more and more. And I think John also reminds me that it's great that we can make bold statements about the utility of any type of modality, but that ultimately we need to have some research that backs up uh, our words. And I think that, and I think based on how he has made the statements, he would agree that the research will be done and it will most likely show that uh, this is the way that we should move forward. Perfect. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having both uh, you, John, and you, Seth, on this podcast with us. And we in the chess community are very fortunate to have experts with as much insight as you both have. I'd like to thank you both for a great conversation. And a very big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is the Chess Podcast. Take care.